Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Wendy Carlos's music for Stanley Kubrick's 1971 dystopian societal satire, A Clockwork Orange. A Clockwork Orange was adapted for the screen by Stanley Kubrick from the novel of the same name by Anthony Burgess, and it was produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick. John, you don't have to summarize it, but oh, thanks. give us a quick impression of A Clockwork Orange. Okay. No, no. We were listening to that right now. Oh, you, you don't need to do that part. A Clockwork Orange is the story of Alex, a young man in a quasi-dystopian, not quite necessarily future, but sideways step from the reality of British society, who leads a life devoted to the practice of ultra-violence, but then is reformed, question mark? It very much stars Malcolm McDowell <laughs> as Alex. He's in every scene. And then there's a lot of other people in it. There's Patrick McGee and Adrian Corey as an older couple whom Alex terrorizes, rapes, and beats. Uh, Michael Bates, Warren Clark. There's other people in it, but uh, it's Malcolm McDowell's show. So Alex and his hoodlum pals lead a life of wanton violence and hedonism. He is eventually arrested and sent to prison. He ultimately winds up undergoing a process that attempts to condition him out of his violent instincts, a process of questionable morality, which uh, has a result of questionable morality, and uh, it all leads us to question our morality. <laughs> is that good enough? Yeah, for this movie, absolutely. Oh, thanks. Good enough. So this is a famous movie, yeah. an iconic movie, mm -hmm. in some circles a beloved movie. A controversial movie. It's also a very controversial and very strange movie. Yeah. I have no idea what you think of it. John, what do you think of this movie? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. What do I think of this movie? Yeah. What do you think of it? Not often, but now, yeah. Yeah, certainly more often recently than before. Than before, yeah. Occasionally, I would think of it, but not that much. I think I had seen it once before. Yeah, I'm similar. Uh, when I was a fair bit younger, and I had found it unexpectedly distasteful for so famous a movie, and had not known what to do with that, and uh, hadn't really worked on doing something with it, so no. hadn't thought about it since then. Yeah, it's got a lot of distasteful stuff in it. I think it knows that the distasteful stuff is distasteful, and is kind of daring us to be distasted by it. Yeah, it's definitely... Definitely daring you to something. <laughs> and what is that something? Well, I mean, I guess it should be said that the movie is actually a quite faithful adaptation of the book by Anthony Burgess. What I read was that they just took copies of the book to the set yeah. and all opened to the same page and figured out how to stage and shoot the book. Right. And it really, I, I read the book in preparation for this recording. I have read the book, but... Not recently, but I have read it. Yeah, it's very faithful. So in its faithfulness, it includes uh, a lot of quite graphic depictions of, you know, rapes and uh, beatings. 
In fact, if anything, Kubrick has softened them up because some uh, sexual encounters that Alex has in the book are instances where he drugs and rapes very young girls, and those are uh, depicted in the movie as consensual encounters with women his own age, things like that. So it's a violent... I think he himself in the book is indicated to be 15 years old, and Malcolm McDowell reads as several years older than that here. Yeah, I read he's supposed to be 17. He's actually 27 in real life filming it. Yeah, look, my experience reading it and then watching it and trying to actually understand it was I have to wonder if the people who love this movie do understand it, even including Stanley Kubrick. I wonder how clear a message it has for its makers or its audience. It seems like it throws a lot of shocking and problematic things in the air for you to contend with, but I don't know that they land in a coherent pattern. Well, this objection to the movie was very much a contemporary reaction to it. You know, film critics as prominent as Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael hated the movie and bashed Kubrick for exactly that, for playing to the thugs in his audience and doing things uh, exploitative just to be titillating to people who were genuinely into that kind of thing. Well, that's the problem of the whole movie. What I'm very happy to say is that Stanley Kubrick is one of the great filmmakers, and this is watchable. It is (laughs) effective movie making. It's full of cinematic ideas It knows that it's got some dynamite in these various shocking things it wants to show. And it throws dynamite around and makes a fireworks show that is compelling as viewing. And that is problematic to link the power of cinema to this potentially toxic stuff without really clearly knowing what you're doing. And I do wonder if they really clearly knew what they were doing. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a very well-made movie that you have to, like, decide to be okay with the stuff that it shows as part of an artistic effort like I feel like that's something he's asking the audience to bring and if you can academically and intellectually get your head around that then bully for you but uh, you know some <laughs> people didn't and in fact like the movie was not allowed to be shown in England for 25 30 years or something I think that Kubrick himself pulled it out of circulation because there were a couple of copycat crimes committed made to look like things in the movie and he felt guilty about that there were also threats against his family by outraged moralists well it's ambiguous whether he pulled it from circulation because he felt responsible or because he felt like fools who thought he was responsible were frightening to him could be both it could be both but john what do you think of it i want to hear like (laughs) (laughs) i was interested by it I was compelled by the obvious filmmaking prowess, and, uh, you know, I was paying attention to the music. (laughs) Yeah, it was uncomfortable by the stuff that I was supposed to be uncomfortable about, and I feel like the music was put there absolutely with the intention of making me as uncomfortable with it as I could be. So I have to kind of credit and respect it for that, and then also say, uh, okay, enough of that. I noted that 15, 20 years ago, I don't remember when the last time I watched it was, I had really been uncomfortable and I've been desensitized since then. Mm. What can I say? A lot of this stuff that really took me aback uh, just doesn't anymore because you've seen it before. It definitely hits home a different way in a post-Game of Thrones world. (laughs) Yeah. I think that that is a flaw in this material that it doesn't recognize its own capacity to condition the audience even as it decries conditioning as worse than all of this stuff 
which seems to be its position, but maybe that's not its position. No, I don't think that's exactly its position. I think that's, you know, one of the positions that's being satirized. Look, I mean, to me, sort of summed up, I was watching DVD extra documentary things, and one of them, and I don't remember who the talking heads were, but there was one person saying, you know, we're watching these horrible things, but we're also having fun watching this amazing movie making. And then it cuts to the second talking head saying, you know, some people who didn't understand the movie said that the movie was trying to make this stuff fun. (laughs) (laughs) And the sort of necessary hypocrisy of loving the movie seemed exposed there to me. I am glad that we seem to be on the same page about the you and Kubrick's names. I was yeah, a little worried about... Yeah, people say Kubrick. You used to say Kubrick. Uh, uh, yeah. but I You've always... probably heard me say Kubrick on this show before, and having that little uh, Y at the beginning of the vowel is called a liquid U, and uh, I looked it up, and uh, apparently the U is supposed to be dry in this case. Yeah, you, you aren't alone in that. Okay, so the music, right? This is a show about the music you say. Yeah, and it's all tangled up. I mean, Stanley Kubrick was undeniably good at deploying music to make powerful effects on the audience. Yeah, I mean, in fact, we have talked about a Kubrick movie and its score before. That was Spartacus, for which Alex North wrote a full, I dare say, heavy-handed at times, and at times beautiful, but like very assertive, you know, musical score to score the whole movie. Wrote a lot of original music for that movie. You know, we talked about getting the sense that uh, Kubrick just didn't dig that. (laughs) He didn't want original music to be having its own things to say about stuff that he wanted to have the final say about, I think. And that gets reflected in his diminished use of original music from that point forward. Which is something you said on the Spartacus episode. We said, yeah, he doesn't really do scores after that. And we said, yeah, there's some Wendy Carlos music in uh, Clockwork Orange and The Shining, but uh, it's not really a score. But now let's dig into that. It's sort of a score. It's sort of a score, but I mean, it's important to point out that the vast majority of the music that you hear in the movie is not original music. The first thing that you hear, well, you know, you might call the very first few seconds of the score original because it's this synthetic, whooshy, ambient sound. But after a little while, that sound coalesces into more discernible notes, and they are the notes of a piece by the Baroque composer Henry Purcell. It's a funeral march for Queen Mary from 1695, I think. And then we certainly hear a bunch of Beethoven in the movie, which is necessary because the character in the movie, like the character in the book, himself is a big fan of Ludwig van, as he says. Right. But actually, I think we hear more music in the movie by Rossini than by Beethoven, certainly by time. Yeah, we hear many, many minutes of the overture to La Gazza Ladra. The Thieving Magpie. The Thieving Magpie. Do you, do you know anything about The Thieving Magpie? It's an opera by Rossini. Yeah, someone is accused of theft, but it turns out that a magpie was stealing and all is right in the end. Yeah, somebody's wrongfully accused of thieving, and then it turns out, no, the, who was doing the thieving was a magpie, which... I just wondered, maybe you shouldn't have called it the thieving magpie right up front. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the famous Agatha Christie novel, Everybody Did It. You're right. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry if you hadn't seen the thieving magpie before, (laughs) we gave it away. I think the title of the opera should have been Spoiler Alert, The Thieving Magpie. (laughs) So all of this non-original music is in the movie, and we hear, you know, ordinary orchestral recordings of it for some of the time. 
the La Gataladra overture, we only ever hear that in a real orchestra recording like usual. But a bunch of other music, you know, obviously that personal that we just mentioned that starts the movie, sometimes the Beethoven, sometimes other stuff, is not original music, but the performance of it for the movie is very, very original. Yeah. I mean, the impact that you get at the beginning there is that this is classical music, but it has been transformed. It has been processed. I was trying to get a sense in 1971, how much would an audience's response to these opening sounds have been, what is that? Yeah. I think that they were starting to know what that was, but it was still new and fresh, and it has been very influential. Well, to the degree that they did know what it was, it was probably due to the work of Wendy Carlos. That's right. And I guess maybe we should pause and back up here and just talk about the enormous influence that Wendy Carlos has had on the soundscape of music overall in the 20th and into the 21st century. Yeah. So she studied both physics and music and something of a wunderkind, right? She built her own computer as a kid and quite remarkable musical intellect. and Musical and sort of engineering intellect. Yeah, exactly. Which a perfect combination for the moment to be the prophet of a new instrument that was about music and engineering at the same time. Right. I've heard her describe her collaboration with Robert Moog, who designed and created the first real synthesizer of note, the Moog synthesizer. That was this enormously influential innovation in music making. And she was right there alongside him, kind of making requests and pushing him to create the instrument that was capable of doing the things with it that she wanted. I've heard her say that, you know, she was a musician who understood engineering and he was an engineer who understood music so they could talk to each other in this productive way. So that's what this sound is. This is the Moog synthesizer, which is a major early synthesizer, an analog synthesizer, which means that unlike other synthesizers we've talked about from the 80s and later, this was not a computer. It was just a bunch of electronic devices linked together that, you know, sort of molded electrical signals into musical sounds. And the operator, the synthesist, had to do that themselves. This was like math and electronics and engineering. It was not just like loading up GarageBand or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we talked about synthesizers when we talked about Brad Fidel's Terminator scores. You know, we kept using the word patch to describe a synthetic instrument that you could load up. She's not working with patches here. She is genuinely synthesizing the sound in the, you know, original dictionary definition of synthesizing, of making it up from scratch. Well, I think she's actually working with the original meaning of patch, which is why the term patch means that now, which is, you know, patch cable. Patch meant you linked the oscillator that made the sound to the filter that changed the sound to the envelope that changed the filter with these cables. Right. And a particular configuration of those cables, I think they would call a patch, right? Yeah, exactly right. So a particular sort of recipe for creating a certain timbre with these just raw ingredients of take a sine wave, make it go like this, filter it this way, combine it with a different wave going in this direction that interacts in this way. These raw ingredients, you know, there's a recipe to them that, yeah, exactly, get physically patched together. Like you can imagine a uh, a big telephone operator switchboard looking thing where you plug cables from one thing to the next. So the word patch colloquial came to mean like 
the resulting instrument that you get when all of this, you know, recipe cooking has already been done. But this was the original creation of the recipe. Wendy Carlos did so much of the work of figuring out how to combine oscillations of electronically generated tones and mess with them in very pointed ways to make sounds that, you know, did things and felt different ways and could be used in different ways. So she genuinely making these sounds up from scratch. So I'll do it this way. Here she is demonstrating the Moog in 1970. That can be speeded up till we almost start hearing a plucked string. If we turn that around and make it uh, open up instead of closing, it does this, which was quite a surprise when I first heard it. I think it's a little unfortunate that the resulting sounds became ubiquitous enough to sound like, you know, we use the word cheesy to describe synthetic sounds in the Terminator episode, you know, beep boop beep boop noises for computer stuff. I think that that association is unfortunate in this case because it masks the genuine act of creation that was required to get to them. Maybe it's just me, or maybe it's with the historical knowledge that I have, but I feel like you can hear in this music that it is more aesthetically engaged with its own timbral construction. It feels like yeah. the artistic work that she was doing then is apparent. The person who is figuring out what to do with the sounds is the person who was discovering and creating the sounds, and I feel like exactly the opposite of the criticism I made in the Terminator episode where I was saying, yeah, these are prefabricated things being just pulled out of a box. Mm -hmm. This is the opposite, and it feels artistically like the opposite. Absolutely. There's no box, there's no toolkit, there's just what can you build out of nothing, and then what does it sound like to you? What do you think that would be good for? You hear her discovering what it sounds like, what it would be good for, what it evokes. And uh, that's exciting still to me when I listen to this music. Absolutely. And so let's back up from here. This movie is 1971. Let's go back to hear what it sounds like when she actually is really discovering what to do with these sounds. In 1968, she put out an album called Switched On Bach which was one of the biggest hit records in classical music history, I think still is. And it was this like debut of what you could do with this new way of creating tones. To my mind, it makes such perfect sense that the first thing she would go to as an arena in which to play with this new toy is the music of Bach. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think she said something about that. Bach wrote in this elaborate polyphonic style with all these voices, but each voice is one note at a time, which is the way the instrument worked, mm -hmm. and they combine in a rigorously defined quasi-mathematical way, but it creates this beautiful human music, and that is exactly what she wanted to show that the synthesizer could do, and it makes a perfect match. I think I talked about my own predilection for playing Bach on the piano in a previous episode. Yeah, that's right. I have just always felt like Bach has this mathematical rigor to it that means that it can accommodate almost anything. The value in the music comes from the relationship of these pitches in time to each other so purely with such crystalline clarity that if you're doing those pitches in that time relationship, you can kind of do anything else to them. 
them. When I play Bach, I like to be, you know, kind of devil may care with the dynamics. I like to try to play a phrase going from soft to loud the first time, and then when the music repeats back around, play it going from loud to soft. Again, just like totally invert the dynamics and just find new things in the music that can speak through any of these interpretive decisions that I make. Furthermore, I think that there was kind of this idea that, yeah, you can do stuff to Bach in the air in the mid-60s. Like, do you know the Swingle Singers? Sure, sure. Yeah, this French group of vocalists, I think the term for what they're doing is vocalese, where they're singing on nonsense syllables, but they're using their human voices to realize these compositions, and they jazzed it up. So they put out this pair of albums, I think, in 63 and 68, called Jazz Sebastian Bach, in which they added a jazz rhythm section, a drum and bass. I love this stuff. I think it's so cool because it shows that the relationships inherent in the music are robust enough that you get different things out of them when you do them in a different way. Like, listen to the Bach double violin concerto, the way the swingle singers do it. When you get to the B section of it, they tweak the rhythms of the little accompaniment chords, bum, 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 which are, you know, played straight and even in the real Bach, but when they do it, they've got this jazz syncopation and anticipation to it. And it just works so great, it all of a sudden makes Bach feel like, you know, he's comping these chords with his left hand as a jazz pianist and shows the deep unity that lies behind all musical endeavors. Apologies for getting highfalutin here. No, but, but you, I, I was waiting for you to get highfalutin because the question is, what is the effect? What is the artistic effect for the audience of these transformations? So to you, what did you say, say it again? It represents the unity of all human endeavor? <laughs> I think I said <laughs> the unity of music, the unity of the endeavor of arraying pitches through time. There there is a universality to it that spans the centuries. You know, the fact that you can take this Bach and use jazz performance techniques on it, it shows that it's a fertile ground for creativity in fantastic ways. And I think that what Wendy Carlos has done with her Moog synthesizer is an apotheosis of the kind of interpretation playing around that I was mentioning, where I was saying, ooh, what if you made the sounds go this way one time and the other way a different time? She's saying, well, what if you just made the sounds, period? In order to do that, she has to think of, why did Bach write the notes in this way in the first place? Why should we be hearing them do this? You know, I just feel like she comes up with intriguing answers and revelations about the relationships of these notes in new ways all through this album. And she put out a bunch of follow-up albums, too. She really got a lot out of this well. So what you're describing is essentially orchestration, which is something that also had been done with Bach, where someone might have arranged a Bach keyboard piece for full orchestra, you know, like Stokowski and Fantasia, you hear organ piece in the whole orchestra. That's something that many people had done with Bach over the years. Mm -hmm. That, to my ears, has yet another kind of message about its use of the old materials. But I wonder how subjective these messages are. Sometimes when I hear something like the Swingle Singers, I think they're kind of putting across that we, you know, have finally relaxed in the modern <laughs> age. We can respect old things, but we've livened them up with getting real about how things are. And there's a slight superiority to the older thing. But then other times I don't hear it quite that way. It sounds like you hear them as an equal, you know, sort of a handshake on respectful, equal terms. Is that how you hear it? Or do you hear it a little bit as like, yeah, the 20th century is better than the 18th? Come on. But... 
No, I don't quite hear it that way because I think that the idea that jazz is relaxed, as I think I've said before, is, you know, a stylistic effect being put across for the listener that actually takes great exactitude to realize. Right, sure, and all respect to that, but that all the more so shows that they really wanted to create this effect. Is the effect not that of having advanced the emotional message beyond where Bach was able to get because we know more about uh, being cool now? Well, I think it is advancing the emotional message in the ways that I'm saying, you know, that it's finding new things to say with, you know, these same notes on the page. And if the Swingle Singers had an intention to say that the staid, robotic performance tradition of Bach could use some shaking up, I'm going to say I think they were right. And, you know, who else agreed with me that doing stuff to Bach was valid and good to do? Are you going to say Bach? No. (laughs) No. Okay, good. (laughs) I don't know him that well, but... Perhaps the most famous interpreter of Bach in the modern age, Glenn Gould, Mm -hmm. had enormously praiseful things to say about Switched on Bach. He thought it was an absolutely valid and worthy act of creativity. Yeah, and I just blanket want to say whatever I express reservations about here, they're never in terms of whether something is valid. But you could easily imagine Glenn Gould turning up his nose and saying, no, this isn't valid. Yeah, but I can also easily imagine, I don't have to imagine, people turning up their nose at Glenn Gould and saying, "Uh, that isn't valid. (laughs) Any interpretation is, you know, subject to argument. I'm happy for the world to contain all of these things. I'm just saying they say different things. I think what the Wendy Carlos Moog Bach says about life and Bach and the history of culture is different from what the Swingle Singer says, different from what... Of course. When you listen to a full orchestration with the 19th, 20th century full symphony orchestra playing Bach... Yeah. It's saying to me somehow that our palette of feeling and vision has broadened so much since relatively uptight 18th century. Our hearts are bigger now, we can see more, we're standing on a higher mountaintop or something like that. And maybe that's specific to me too. But I wanted to touch on these so that we can talk about what I think is really essential to talking about the score of the Clockwork Orange. What does it mean when old classical music gets put into the mode? Absolutely, it means something. I don't think we're in disagreement about that. No, I I don't think so, but I suspect we might have slightly different feelings about it. I'm not sure it means any one thing that can be put into words. Well, let's find out. But I do get the very strong impression that Wendy Carlos was engaged with that question, maybe in a way that she never articulated, I don't know for certain. Hey, maybe we should talk about Wendy Carlos for a second here. Have we not been? Well, we've been talking about her work, but Wendy Carlos, major innovator of synthesizer music, is known to be a denizen of the internet. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that she is perhaps the subject of one of these episodes that we've done that is most likely to conceivably wind up hearing what we have to say about them? I guess that's possible. More likely than Max Steiner, certainly. Yeah. You'd think more likely than Franz Waxman, but uh, we found a way around that. We got proved wrong. Yeah, so our trademark blend of research and no research (laughs) 
maybe is a problematic thing to lob at the person themselves who has, she's made clear over the year that she cares about how she and her work are represented as well she might. So let's say officially the authority on Wendy Carlos' life and work is Wendy Carlos and you should check out her website, which is full of her writings and cool stuff like a page of the sheet music from the score and all kinds of details about her technical process. It's a cool website that she's been maintaining for 20 years now, wendycarlos.com. So, Wendy, when we don't know what we're talking about, we apologize. And uh... It's true. I mean, listen, I'll go ahead and apologize to Wendy Carlos for things that we didn't know what we were talking about, about all the other things we've talked about, too. Yes. And to the listeners, what, what can we say? We're just doing a podcast here. Come on. It's just a podcast. Come on. Anyway, so the thing that I was daring to speculate about was what she felt was the meaning Mm -hmm. of taking existing music and putting it through this new instrument that made new sounds, never before heard sounds. Yes. What does it mean about life, culture, art, music Mm -hmm. itself to do this? Obviously, it means different things to different people. What does it mean to you, John? You know, I was saying that when I hear Swiss on Bach, it kind of activates my appreciation for Bach in an interesting way to me. You know, the switched on Purcell and Beethoven that we hear in the movie doesn't strike me exactly the same way. I think in the movie, it's certainly making a gesture towards being an alternate universe. You know, familiar things have an unfamiliar tint on them. I think that's right. I, I get that kind of off of Switched on Bach, too, that there's... Okay. Something about the modern world, something about how the past looks to us now as we're sort of squinting at it Mm. through the new lenses that this technological age has put in front of us. And maybe it looks better, maybe it looks worse, maybe we can hear more clearly, maybe not. Somehow that's what it is asking us to think about. Yeah, like when you said we're squinting at it, I kind of feel like the movie's attitude towards the Wendy Carlos treatments here is that that's kind of the sound of the squinting. It's playing up this friction in your head of what you are familiar with with what you're not quite familiar with in the same way and getting a a dramatic potential energy out of that difference. Yeah, I think actually what you just said describes the movie as a whole. Sure. Beyond the plot and what the movie is about, what made it the most impact about this movie and still does is its vision of this remixed reality. You said dystopian at the beginning. It's sort of dystopian. I said quasi-dystopian. It's quasi-dystopian. Well, exactly. The quasi-ness of it. Uh It's all built out of recognizable culture, except why? Why is it in this configuration? Why are they talking to each other in, you know, high-flown... like these and thous and he's wearing a bowler hat and he loves Beethoven. I mean, when we first hear the Rossini, we're actually shown this ruined stage and there is the sense that the classical culture from which this is coming is ruins that these kids are playing in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's genuinely unclear to me whether Burgess and then Kubrick in turn saw this as a kind of cultural, post-apocalyptic, grotesque, whether there's something degrading to the old culture that it's being used in these strange juxtapositions, or whether it still has its essential meaning just, you know, put through a dream. As is often my want, I I feel like I want to say, why not both? Yeah, I I guess that's right. Um, 
You know the movie Brazil, the Terry Gilliam movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I was watching this, I was thinking, oh man, Terry Gilliam owes so much to this movie. Brazil is like true. fanfic of this movie almost. <laughs> and I actually read that Kubrick approached Terry Gilliam to do the titles for this as animation at the time. Uh, and he, he wasn't free to do oh, it. Oh, like, like Flying Circus. Because he had seen his work on Monty Python, yeah. Yeah, so in Brazil, which maybe we'll talk about that someday, it has an interesting score. The concept is that this sweet uh, pop tune, Brazil is grotesquely pathetic juxtaposition with this dehumanizing world that everyone lives in, that the sentimentality that it's putting out is cruelly incompatible with the reality that these people live in. That reads pretty clearly in that movie. Whereas in this movie, I can't always tell. Anthony Burgess clearly cares about whether people get to feel moved by music. That's kind of the crux of the whole plot. Alex gets his ability to love Beethoven wrenched out of him by this treatment, and he screams. Yeah, I, I admit, I, I kind of felt a little bit uh, somewhat uncomfortably seen by that uh, scientist who, who asks Alex <laughs> the treatment. Are you referring to the background score? Yes! Yeah, it's amazing. This is a movie about the effects of music yes! in movies. Um, <laughs> so you're keen on but how, how cynically, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, how cynically? No, <laughs> I'm asking. I'm asking you, really. And in turn, how much truth and how much cynicism is supposed to come across in the Wendy Carlos music? Hmm. Sort of the wonderful effect of it is that it, it really does work both ways. It does work both ways. And what's fascinating is that Kubrick kind of has it work both ways. As I was going through the movie, especially my second time through, I felt compelled to try to understand when it was old-fashioned orchestral recordings, traditional sounds of classical music as we ordinarily think of it, and when it was these, uh, you know, tinted mirror unexpected reflections of classical music through Carlos's Moog. Mm -hmm. I think that Kubrick had a big hand in when it was what, because like I said, we never hear a synthetic version of the Rossini opera. She made one for an album she put out later, but it wasn't done during production of the movie. Okay, but she did make some of her trademark synthesizer performances of music that wound up not being used by Kubrick. And then when she went on to do music for The Shining, I think she wound up being frustrated with how much of what she did wound up not being used in the movie. And, yeah, you know, the great majority of it. Right. Again, this is something we've mentioned about Kubrick in the past, you know, that he threw out in the entire original score to 2001 by Alex North and replace it with all of the temp. So he was famously finicky about this and beholden to the temp music. I've read where Carlos says that she wishes that he didn't get the temp so firmly in his head. Anyway, I can guess that Kubrick had some kind of a system by which he was deciding, you know, in conjunction with her, what was going to be a quote-unquote real performance and what was going to be a synthesizer performance. And I said quote-unquote around real because roughly my idea that I came up with is that the film uses orchestral performances for things that are not real or that are detached from whatever reality we're thinking of. And it uses the synthesizer performances for things that are really happening in Alex's head that mean something to him more personally. What do you think about that? Um, you know, go ahead and make your case. But my take, having done essentially the same thing, my take is that Kubrick might have made some mistakes in making these choices. Hmm. 
I have heard, you know, certainly Alex North complaining that he wrote all this music and Kubrick was just too married to the temp to even consider how it might work in the movie. But I thought 2001 gains so much from yeah. the specific meaning of the entire history of mankind, you know, the cultural history of this species mm-hmm. being the voice that you hear and you it's records being put on. There's a spiritual message that relates to what 2001 is about. Yeah. Whereas in this movie, I actually thought this sounds like he might have gotten addicted to doing that. And I'm not sure it's doing what it should do. But make a case to me that there's a rigorous system that justifies everything. I don't think it's quite rigorous, but I think there's something to it. I definitely agree that, you know, whether or not it's synthetic, it's pre-existing. It's very, very well-established and well-known classical music among the most famous pieces of classical music, the most famous and celebrated pieces. I mean, to the point of almost that being the joke, the use of William Tell Overture seems like... You're not supposed to have forgotten that that's the Lone Ranger and is already right. kind of a tropey thing that's just... Uh, I think it is used as a joke. And, you know, it's part of the uncomfortable joke of the ultraviolence that we see in the movie is that it is set to this Rossini overture. It gives those scenes a sense of play-acting... You know, that even these wanton hoodlums of society are going through some sort of rote motions. That's how it made me feel. You know, when we first hear it, we actually see this gang of thugs starting into attempt to rape this woman on an actual stage. Like you were saying, they're in these abandoned ruins of some kind of theatrical space, and it's not a coincidence that Cooper puts a proscenium around this. Having this comic opera, comic overture, it makes it feel like a Punch and Judy show in this very uncomfortable way because it's really actually horrible assault happening. But it makes it feel rote and sort of the sense of, well, this is how it always happens, especially because we hear the exact same music again when they go to do the same thing again the next night. It's like, here we go again, appealing to the sense of here we go again that the opera felt like in the first place, and then hearing the opera for the umpteenth time that you've heard this very famous opera overture gives you the feeling of here we go again. I wrote down Punch and Judy too, so I'm glad you said that. And yes, that's absolutely apropos because Punch and Judy do horrible things to each other. Yeah. The point, yes, is that we're just supposed to recognize this as the human story, the ugly truth of natural man. This is just what's natural. We beat each other, we rape each other. Ah, it's grotesque, but you got to admit it. And I think that is sort of the baseline for what Burgess and Kubrick are saying here that I sort of have a problem with. I don't think I believe that entirely. I'm not even sure he sticks to those guns throughout, but that's what I take away from The Thieving Magpie, that there's no amount of brutality that he could put on screen that isn't in some sense the same old story. Yeah, that's definitely right. I definitely agree with that. But I did take a slightly different thing away from it in addition, which is that, again, I'm looking for it. But when I went looking for it, it felt to me like it was characterizing these events from the point of view of Alex. That even for Alex, this nightly ritual of ultraviolence is rote, is what society expects of him. You know, his own society, the society of him and his druids. 
That's such a strange, interesting phrasing, though, that this is what society expects of him. I feel like yeah. the thing the movie, I think, specifically neglects to address is why Alex is like this. Why doesn't the movie talk about why Alex is like this? It implies that society is so violent and pornographic and hypocritical that this is the way that people just end up behaving. But then, so yeah. Again, I make this case tepidly, but to continue it, when he gets taken away to jail, when we see this helicopter shot of this facility where he's being taken and we hear this sad cello solo that's also by Rossini... You hear this music over Alex saying, now here comes the real weepy and like tragic part of the story. This is the real weepy and like tragic part of the story beginning, oh my brothers and only friends. After a trial with judges and a jury and some very hard words spoken against your friend and humble narrator. Throughout this whole sequence where he's being processed into jail and taking off his clothes, he has this very arch, ironic attitude where he's just not taking it seriously. You know, he's sort of holding himself above it all. This music being like this relic that is being played on old instruments, being played off of old music, and is an old recording, gave it, for me, this sense of he's not taking it seriously. It's part of his ironic outlook about it. He thinks it's all a show. And I think that's especially true for when we hear Elgar's pomp and circumstance when he's being marched around inside the jail. This is all for show. This is the staid, prefab stuff. I think that's contrasted with the use of the synthetic music, which seems to be more closely allied with his actual thoughts and his actual interests that he does take seriously. He takes Beethoven seriously. When he goes to the record shop, presumably to buy some Beethoven, we hear Beethoven's Ninth Symphony being played by Wendy Carlos on the Moog in this reimagining with these new and uniquely originally created sounds. It seemed to me to be suggesting that society is giving you this old-fashioned, regurgitated stuff in the form of this orchestral music that you've heard a million times, but that original thought, your own actual mind, is better characterized by new sounds that, you know, I remember you once describing the sound of synthetic sounds as something that is coming from inside of your head because it never actually occurred in real air. I think this movie is evoking something like a person's real inner life has the timbral creativity to be made up of these new sounds. You know, when Alex is relaxing at home after a busy night of ultraviolence, he's taking off his fake eyelashes, we hear a different version of the same personal piece that started the movie. This is a version that Wendy Carlos on the soundtrack calls Beethoviana because it's done up with sort of more late classical era figurations. Do you think it's supposed to be a reference to the Moonlight Sonata? That was my thought about why she called that Beethoven. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely evoking that trope of arpeggiated accompaniment. So this is like the synthesis of this Baroque funeral march, but it's put through his head. Like this is the sound of things being put through Alex's head because he is thinking about it and he's using his own soundscape in his head to cast these things. He's whistling it, in fact.
Look, everything you're saying describes things in the movie that I see and everything that's in play. I... I'm talking about the right movie? All right, well, that's a relief. Everything that is in play in the conceptual space for me is the stuff you're talking about. But I feel like if you made a diagram of Stanley Kubrick's point of view and Alex the character's point of view and the audience's point of view and the point of view of Beethoven or Rossini or Purcell coming from out of the past, and society's point of view within the world of the movie, and the interrelationships of these things, and you made arrows pointing at each other, you would just have some kind of crazy Escher staircase <laughs> chaos where it doesn't... Yeah. Who is superior to whom and who feels ironic toward what? I feel like you get tied in a knot almost immediately. Or not almost immediately. It seems like one kind of thing. We haven't even mentioned, and kudos to us, we haven't imitated the dialect, the slang, the NADSAT, in which the book is written, all through Alex's voice, where he's saying that everything is horror show, and these are his droogs, and he vidied something, and he... And he slushied the Ludwig van. Yes. My brothers and sisters, it is heavy with this constructed speech. So the beginning of the book, the impact is immediately, what is this language and what is this world this takes place in? And the movie has a famous and I think successful recreation of that effect with this first shot where you start on the weird hat and fake eyelashes and then pull back to their weird clothes and then they're in a weird place with these pornographic statues drinking milk and it's just surreally bizarre alternate universe. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs. That is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Karova milk bar trying to make up our Razudoks what to do with the evening. The proposal of the book and the movie is you're somewhere else. Something is different. You are off balance and we're already daring you. Can you handle it? Mm -hmm. That's the impact through the language and through this opening cue with these clashes that resolve into the personal. It's a shock tactic, shock and awe. The audience is supposed to feel scared, right, in some sense, at the beginning? Mm -hmm. The funeral music, you know, whose funeral is it? We feel like something important has died here, you know, good society. This is a bad place. This is a world in which things have gone awry. That's the initial impact of the synthesizer to me. It represents my dislocation from feeling secure. And Alex is sitting in the center of it as kind of the master of ceremonies of this horrifying world in which this movie is going to take place. He actually tips his glass like at the camera as though to welcome you into it. Right. Welcome to the hellscape of my reality. Maybe I'm already misreading the movie at that point. Because later, it's just not clear. Is he the product of his society or is he natural man? All men are like this in men. All, all human beings are always like this. You can just say men. Or is it that this society is particularly degraded? I think Kubrick tries to make it a little more sociological and political than Burgess had it be. So this main title music with the personal, with these kind of phased string type mm -hmm. sounds that Carlos gets out of the synthesizer and these clangorous kind of echoing. If you listen to the original personal, here it is with a brass choir and a drum accompaniment. It's a dirge. It's supposed to be people marching, carrying a coffin to this. I think Purcell actually just wrote a trumpet quartet and then the recording that Kubrick was using is this recording where these people had added a timpani because it seems appropriate. And then Wendy Carlos directly imitated this. 
I was just taken with the way she renders the timpani line. She also interpolates into what would have been the timpani line. She adds in Dies Irae, which, uh-huh. you know, keeps coming back. I think the Dies Irae plays most prominently after Alex has come out of the conditioning process and he gets beaten up by his old pals and he's crawling to the house where he committed the first ultraviolence in the beginning of the movie. So as he's crawling up to the doorstep, we hear, yeah, the Dies Irae that we've talked about before. That scene that you're talking about is a scene for which Wendy Carlos actually wrote a whole cue, like a real movie-scored piece that's not just an adaptation, but is actually timed to picture, uses motifs, fits things together. When his old droogs show up and now they're malicious police officers, there's this echo of Thieving Magpie sort of laughing at him. Then uh, just all about Dies Irae as he's dragged to this thing and has his head held underwater. She wrote a whole piece that accompanied the scene. But Kubrick didn't use this, and this gets to whether he was attached to his temp or not, but just more about what his choices are. That Purcell, the shock effect of the opening moments, he returns to it, I think, three more times with the same effect to try to make things intimidating to the audience. Maybe sometimes also to Alex, but it seems like it's to accompany his Kubrickian framings of things that are supposed to sort of overwhelm you with their symmetry. It's definitely that, but I think you're right when you said that it's intimidating to Alex in this final time we hear it while he's getting beaten up. Well, well, well. <laughs> if it isn't little Alex, long time no video, Drew. So that's exactly it. If Alex is a bad guy, and the point is just, well, bad guys are part of the world, we need to have a moral system that can encompass that, then we shouldn't be sympathizing with him when he looks up and sees the cops. Like, why isn't that part of the Punch and Judy show, too? Yeah, well, I can tell you. I mean, I have an answer. All right, why? Because that's what the conditioning has done to him. This is the result of what is in his head being subverted and co-opted. In the beginning, the first image that we see is his face. He is the center of the whole shot, and the shot zooms out around him, and it's very much about him. And then this personal material, I think in the most like personal moment in the movie when he's walking back home and whistling, I think this strongly associates this material with his inner thought processes and it's associating his volition with the synthetic nature of these sounds. Because the act of creating sounds from whole cloth is an act of willfulness that I think is at play here because the movie is about the question of free will. So then he goes in to have the Ludovico treatment and his eyes are clamped open horribly. Then they clamped like lid locks on the eyes so that I could not shut them no matter how hard I tried. It seemed a bit crazy to me, but I let them get on with what they wanted to get on with. It's here that we hear the only Wendy Carlos actually original music that did make it into the final film. And maybe we'll talk more about this piece later because it's quite interesting. 
But to me, what this sounds like, what it's trying to evoke is deconstruction. It's taking these elements of the classical soundscape we've heard before, you know, the way notes are figured and realized that we've heard already in the movie, and taking them apart and making them fuzzy and dirty and chaotic sounding. So far, the first film was a very good professional piece of cine, like it was done in Hollywood. The sounds were real horror show. You could slushy the screams and moans. It's very, very I think, effective evocation of Alex's mind being deconstructed. You think that's like his neurons being pulled apart, flying around. Yeah, exactly, because we have been shown how the actual work of his neurons is commensurate with these synthetic sounds. And so now those neurons are being frayed and ripped out of the wall and reconfigured. Then the next day, he comes into the treatment, and scientists who are doing this to him are playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony for him. Presumably, they are playing an orchestral recording to him. But what we are hearing is the reflection of that through his now frayed mind. We're hearing it inside of his head in this synthetic way to represent the fact that these external controls have been implanted into his head. You know, when we heard him listening to Beethoven's Ninth earlier, when he put it on in his room, and he puts it on on like a dictaphone tape, which I think it was supposed to be like evidence of some sort of technological advancement that he's not playing it off of a record like anybody would have in 1971. He's got some newfangled technology. Looks like a dictaphone tape, right? I don't know. I thought it was just slightly, you know, it wasn't that it's new and future. It's just not what you actually do in real life, just like their outfits, just like everything else. It's alternative. Anyway, he was listening to the real performance and now we're hearing what is presumably still a real performance of it being filtered through his now altered brain. I, John, I admire your belief that everything is happening for a reason, but you're contradicting yourself because you said that when we heard this very same music earlier, exactly the same recording when he was at the record store, yeah. that represented Alex's outlook. Exactly. He was thinking about it. That was the soundtrack that is playing in his head. That's a representation of the thoughts of Beethoven being in his head and being his own real interest. And then now it's been corrupted. Now it's been inverted. He's being forced to think these things. Now he's listening to it and it's synthetic and that shows that it's wrong. Yes, exactly right. Now he's listening to it in the room. (laughs) They're not playing a Moog performance of it, but he's hearing it as synthetic because it's in his head and it's wrong and it's subverted. It's co-opted away from him. Yeah, right. Just let me go, okay? There's plenty of holes to be poked in this fine. (laughs) But come on. Got a podcast, Eric. Got to make yeah, you got to have something, I guess. But my thing is that I think this is a mistake. Okay. I mean, you found it like a clever double negative way to justify Thank it. But you. I think it is a mistake. Kubrick should have used the live orchestral recording here hmm. to accompany these shots of Hitler and, you know, uh, war atrocities, we assume. Although he doesn't show nearly as atrocious things in the movie as he does in the book. Like, the offense of the Ludovico treatment is not nearly as stomach-turning in the movie. And I feel like using the real music would have made the film that he's watching Perhaps. more plausible. And also, when he shouts, it's a sin that you're doing this to Beethoven, you're doing it to me. It's a sin of you to condition me against Beethoven. I think Anthony Burgess wants us to agree with him there. That that's what's wrong sin? with this. What's all this about sin? Using Ludwig van Beethoven, he can do harm to anyone. Beethoven 
And by making it this Moog version, that uh, it means we don't have to contend with the sin there. We're just sort of watching something weird and hearing him talk about it. Okay, I perhaps. I'm not going to deny that it could have been effective to be done the other way. But this is the interpretation of how it was done that I made up for myself. Is that All right. we're hearing it this way because it's coming through his head and his head is being messed with. So it's the wrong relationship. And then, sure enough... From that point forward, the relationships between the real music and the synthetic music that I posited before are indeed inverted. Whereas before, the slow, sad cello bit of this Rossini piece that we had heard for him going into jail and kind of being this sarcastic snot about it the whole time, that same music is now accompanying him feeling genuinely depressed and not sure what to do with himself and perhaps contemplating suicide, you know, looking into the river and thinking about throwing himself into it and then the old wino that they beat up in the beginning comes back to torment him and... Now this music is music that he's forced to deal with and to take seriously, whereas he was holding it at arm's length before. So it's a reversal of what was real and what is role-playing. And then again, now his old droogs show up, Georgie and Dim, and they're perversely police officers. Oh, no! Now we hear the Purcell... That was his trademark. That was the sound of his face looking directly down the camera and daring the audience to come into his wanton world. Now it's been taken away from him. Long time no video, Drew. That goes. It's impossible. Now it is the music that is being used to torment him. It's the music of these oppressive forces beating him up. It's his old tune co-opted. The wrong team has the ball here. To drive that point home, they put these big synthy blat hits right on the wax of the billy club as they're beating him up with his head in the trough. <laughs> I mean, those wax basically confirm what you feel at the beginning, which is that, you know, whatever imaginary echoing space we're in where this synth music is coming from is a torture chamber that yeah. you, the audience, have been subjected to. Now you see the sure. physical torture that corresponds to those noises. I can sort of see the scheme you're mapping out here, but the premise of the scheme is that Alex's experience is the essential experience of the movie. But, you know, he's a rapist and a murderer. <laughs> well, uh... The movie is confronting the audience with its world the whole time. So if you're like, well, at this point, it's Alex who's being confronted. But what about us? What are we feeling? Yeah, well, What I want you to justify think... that you, you conveniently skipped over. I want you to tell me now... Why do we hear the personal again when a naked lady comes out on stage? Who is that intimidating? Yeah, the naked lady comes out on stage as part of this, like, humiliation play to demonstrate the success of his conditioning. And, you know, his first instinct is to grab her, but he can't because he's been made to feel sick about it. And when she steps out yeah. with, you know, an effect on the audience, on the cinema, on Kubrick's camera, here comes, whoop, nudity. That is, and don't tell me Stanley Kubrick doesn't know this, that is a power play on the movie's part toward the Absolutely. audience. It's not just something happening to Alex. And they play shock and awe music. And I absolutely allow that. He's choosing to use that because he wants to make a shocking effect. But if you challenge me to fit it into the scheme work that I laid out, yeah, I think he is now exactly being confronted with his own instincts. 
you know, this is again part of the process of taking this music that was about what was inside of him and taking it out of him. Now he's being forced to confront it and it makes him sick. It's part of the inversion I'm talking about. Yeah, I am indeed describing a reading of the movie in which I wouldn't say that Alex is sympathetic, but that his point of view is front and center. You know, because he is an anti-hero, it's impossible for him to not be seen as the protagonist, even though, of course, as you say, he's a rapist and a murderer. It's all part of the stew that the movie is throwing in your face and saying, eh, you know, work this out. I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't even know how strongly I am <laughs> committed to this, but... I, let, I appreciate that you tried to work it here's out. Here's the final piece. No, there's, there's two more pieces <laughs> that I'm going to try to fit into this scheme, which is that when he goes back to the writer's house, and the writer and his friends now attempt to torture Alex into committing suicide so he can use as a pawn in their political movement, they play Beethoven, they play the Ninth Symphony for him again... <laughs> And again, they're playing a real orchestral recording, but Alex is hearing it in the synthetic version because that's what has been forced into his head. That is what has been forced to displace what had been in his head. That's why it sounds like that to him. The pain and sickness all over me like an animal. Then he jumps out the window, but he doesn't die. He's taken to a hospital. We're given to understand that he has now gone through some sort of deconditioning process because the state is trying to make nice with him, blah, blah, blah. Right. And he has to do the uh, the New Yorker caption contest, and he comes up with <laughs> sufficiently hostile <laughs> captions. You know, I didn't think this episode was going to be a forum for me to criticize the New Yorker caption contest, but... Here it goes. He should be writing some of the captions for that contest because they're terrible. The ones that they pick are terrible. The voting on it is terrible. The Jacques, cartoon editor of The New Yorker, do better with those captions. They're terrible. You should just see submitting like, uh, is it Tolchuk for your, your blockos? Whatever, you know. You, yeah, you, maybe I will and that'll show him. But he has, yeah, somehow been deconditioned. And this is presumably happening during a sequence that is montaged in the movie with newspaper clippings. The music that we hear then, what is it? It's that same most personal performance of the original personal music that was his inner life. It's being given back to him because he's now re-inverted, deconditioned, and it's him again. That's where we land. Look, thank you for letting me go through that. It was my assignment to make something up about this movie and the way the music fits into it. I think that there's something in there to think about. I don't necessarily endorse it as being hard and fast. <laughs> it's actually interesting for me trying to digest that because it does kind of map as more yeah, coherent that's right. experience than of. I was able to have. And so what it I It wasn't want... my experience, I should say. This absolutely was not... Oh, that wasn't even your experience. That wasn't I... my experience on the first watch. I did not make these associations between what is synthetic and what isn't on my first watch. But on my second watch, when I set out to figure out what was being said by what was synthetic and what isn't. This is what I came up with. So there you have it. So what I will say completely personal, not arguing with it, just to represent a different experience, what you're describing, that scheme I think is inaccessible to me as a viewer of the movie Okay. because the idea that the synthesizer represents subjective states of mind mm -hmm. or character states is superseded for me, is, mm -hmm. is preempted by how powerful the alienating and defamiliarizing effect is of the synthesizer on me okay. every time it occurs 
as I said, you know, that seems to be the first gesture is to toss the audience in the cold water of this sound. Mm -hmm. Going back to Stanley Kubrick's skill and power as a filmmaker, his ability to wield his art, he has these shots he's so good at framing this kind of architectural sense of the space where you are going down a hallway or looking straight down a hallway or someone's framed in a doorway or there's ominous symmetries or smooth uh, I don't think he had a steady cam yet but dolly shots that basically approximate a steady cam mm -hmm. is kind of floating through the space those have a primal effect on me some dream parameters are being deliberately played with there and I think he knows what he's doing I saw an interview from around the time of the movie where he said that the book impressed him uh, he, he says the story functions of course on several levels political sociological philosophical and what's most important on a kind of dreamlike psychological symbolic level Mr. Kubrick said I feel like the impact of the cinema is to make me feel like I'm in the presence of something worrisome and awe-inspiring and yeah I don't know how to talk exactly about that but I know that it has value to me and I think that 2001 shows how much he cared about that the whole movie sort of operates on that level and then it you know maxes that out at the end and so the Wendy Carlos music I feel is a wonderful analog and contributor to that effect mm -hmm. and the moments when there's these synthesis Sized sounds that you don't know quite where they're coming from, but they have so much space. They feel vast. They feel like they're confronting you with cosmic realities that are both alienating and familiar. And when he conjoins that with his camera work, that first shot, yeah. or the shot when he's in the record store, I don't know why I'm not even sure it means something that relates in a good way to the movie, but I love it. It has some kind of just pure cinema effect on me. I watched it several times in a row, both times I watched the movie, because I love it, where he walks around in a circle around this store, and the camera is dollying backward in front of him the whole time so that the halls are passing on either side, and we just hear the Moog Ninth Symphony march. Yeah don't think I can articulate what it means, but it pops. It's like this music and this imagery is transporting and challenging me and showing me a vision of the world put through some kind of distortion of perception. I feel like this score is very strong at making you feel that the vision is so intrinsically forceful that you have to contend with it on a mm -hmm. sub-rational level. No scheme and no narrative and no philosophy just the forces of cinema and these sound forms that I think Carlos was very, very sensitive to. The cinematic effect is so strong that a subtle scheme about inversions in the character's perspective <laughs> is fair. It's just out of view from where I am. Totally I feel fair. Like I'm being knocked over by strong waves here. Yeah, I mean, I was absolutely aware of there being an overarching sense of some effect of arch detachment in the overall score at the same time as I was imagining these finer gradations of, you know, what is actually being detached from whose point of view. Right. Arch detachment. I mean, that definitely is part of what Stanley Kubrick liked about using borrowed music. We alluded to it. Exactly. Before. Yeah. And this is another thing I wanted to say, like, uh, what does clockwork mean? It's not... Right, uh, they don't even touch on it in the movie. It's a strange omission. Right. The book actually expresses what it's about. Right, it's about... I mean, I read the book less recently than you did, but I remember that it's meant to be this unnatural juxtaposition of mechanical processes with organic.
organic. It's a metaphor for the organic orange of this guy's mind being treated like clockwork by being messed with with this treatment, right? Burgess says that he got this expression, that it was an expression he heard in the air, London slang. It's not well documented elsewhere, and some people have speculated that he made it up and pretended that it was an old expression, but I don't really know why he would have done that. He said there was an expression that if something was suspicious or odd, you'd say it was queer as a clockwork orange. It's like one of these idioms of absurdity that there's no such thing as a clockwork orange. Oranges aren't clockwork and there's no reason for clockwork to be inside an orange. And that is colorful and weird. And he thought it perfectly embodied the critique that his book is trying to make, which I believe is that, I mean, maybe I'm overstating it here, but my sense reading the book is that he was saying the presumptuousness of the mechanistic view of a human being that science and psychology and certainly conditioning and a state that wants to manipulate its population, that this is, in a certain sense, more evil, a worse kind of evil, a more dangerous kind of evil than our old friends rape and murder and violence because those are just part of the human story. And they are part of, I think, in Burgess's view, the Christian scheme of the world. Like, Christ has a plan for redeeming sinners. And when the state tries to usurp the role of religion in redemption, that is a much bigger offense. And it's Mm. treating an orange like it's clockwork. I think that's what he thought he was railing against here. And as I was reading it, I was like, well, how do you think people got to be this way if not something to do with their society? Let me find this quote here. Yeah, he says, My hero or anti-hero Alex is very vicious, perhaps even impossibly so, but his viciousness is not the product of genetic or social conditioning. It is his own thing, embarked on in full awareness. Hmm. Uh, I feel like that attitude that it's just its own thing there is no explanation for it in fact we should be very skeptical of anyone who says there's an explanation for it sits very uncomfortably with the uh look how pornographic and violent society is and how hypocritical this makes them because that becomes the obvious answer to the question why is he like this oh maybe because he grew up around this but uh, i guess kubrick and burgess both thought that that's just inevitable that's just the essential nature of things which for me then sits uncomfortably with the kind of welcome to your nightmare effect of this. If this is how human beings really are, why does it have to take place in a crazy alternate world where people wear eyeballs on their cuffs and one fake eyelash and uh, whatever that jockstrap thing is that they wear? That's like from a cricket outfit or something? What is it? Yeah, that's right. Malcolm McDowell was actually a cricket fan and cricket player, and he came in with his cricket kit to the costume fitting, and that's like the cup that would be part of a cricket player's getup that Cooper told him to put outside his pants. So yeah, I don't think I disagree with anything you just said about how this story works and the potential hypocrisies of it. And indeed, as I was thinking about the score, I was sort of aware of the concept of this music being clockwork on a couple of different levels. You know, in a sense, taking these very well-known orchestral pieces and rendering them with synthetic sounds, well, that's a clockwork orange. You know, that's taking this organic pre-existing thing and rebuilding it out of cogs and gears and moving parts and things that you have to fabricate from scratch and piece together. But then I think more broadly, Kubrick's attitude towards music in this movie and then also in 2001 and others of his films, yeah, has this arch detachment, as I said, where he doesn't want the music to be thinking originally about what's on the screen. 
he wants to plug in pre-existing, prefabricated trains of thought, sort of have those be inputs into his larger machine. And I think that that kind of taking a piece off of the shelf and using its established associations and trains of thought, using those as inputs, it's a clockwork score. Well, my take on the clockwork is, mm-hmm. according to the liner notes on the Carlos score release, as released in 1971 and written by someone else, or 1972, but she reprinted them on her own release later, so I think this must be true. Again, check out wendycarlos.com for the authoritative source, but it seems to be the case that Wendy Carlos and her collaborator, Rachel Elkind, mm-hmm. who is, I think, uh, producer, maybe not an equal creative partner, but a genuine creative partner mm-hmm. in choosing the direction of some of this stuff, and a vocalist, and is the voice that you hear processed in these. They had in mind as a project, I think as early as 1969, to do a successor to the Bach arrangements that involved actual human voice recordings processed through the vocoder, which is what produces this sound. It's a portmanteau of voice encoder, right? I mean, the thing is, the vocoder was invented as a communications technology. It's basically a device that tries to reduce the amount of necessary information to encode the sound of a human voice to uh, minimally simplified waveform for communications use and then the idea started to float oh you could kind of make musical effects out of that because you can make kind of a pure tone as you're stripping information out of the signal yeah carlos and elkind wanted to do some demonstration in combination with the moog of this sound and they hit on why don't we do Beethoven's ninth fourth movement the choral symphony will have all of these voices it's kind of a perfect choice and had started composing the Beethoven's ninth that you hear in the movie and then Carlos says she felt that this sound was going to be so new and sort of aesthetically surprising possibly challenging to listeners she wanted to create an introduction to it something to introduce you to the world of this sound and started writing this piece time steps as a companion piece or a prologue to the recording they were making of Beethoven's Ninth, which we'll talk about it. It's a Fantasia soundscape. It's not in the style of Beethoven or Bach or anything like that. It's a very advanced style, Carlos's own collage style. She said while she was writing this, she started reading Clockwork Orange and felt that there was a relationship, recognized a connection here, and ended up having the novel of A Clockwork Orange in mind while she finished Time Steps. And then they read that there was a movie, Stanley Kubrick had, I think, just finished shooting it, and they sent a tape of these pieces, and maybe some of her other albums, to Kubrick and said, I think I'm your composer. I mean, this is the perfect music, right? And he sort of agreed, but he had, I think, had other things in mind, had already assembled a bunch of this temp music. I saw that he actually wanted to use some Pink Floyd music for some of it. I don't know if I saw that. What I did see is that there are two pieces in here from what's described as a psychedelic folk album by a one-album band called Sun Forest. They recorded special versions for the movie, the weird sort of Renaissance fair music that plays when the jerk comes out on stage and makes Alex lick his boot. The performative jerk. Yeah, the professional jerk comes out. (laughs) I wonder what other gigs that guy gets. 
I mean, John, do you have a theory for why that's the music there? It's such a strange choice. Yeah, no. No. I'll skip that one. It's weird. It's for comic effect, obviously. It's this sweet, ye old music mm -hmm. while uh, you're watching this grotesque display of domination is comic, but how it relates to the use of classical throughout, I don't know. And then the music, when Alex goes home and his parents are listening to a pop song on the radio, that is by the same band, Sunforest. So it seems like Kubrick had started in this direction, had already made contact with this band, and he had found that personal piece. Beethoven is obviously written into the book already. Right. But anyway, this piece that Carlos wrote before signing onto the project, but after associating it in her mind with Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, seems to me a much clearer interpretation of what the Clockwork Orange is. Mm, okay. You know, that you can look at a human being as a, you know, organic thing, or you can look at it in this mechanical way. That's an uneasy thing for us to have to reconcile. And it seems like this music was Carlos's way of addressing that aesthetically by all of what we were saying earlier, by listening to these sounds that the synthesizer was producing. What do they sound like? Mm -hmm. What do they evoke? And to me, this is a very effective collage oh, yeah. piece. And on the soundtrack album that you put out, it's much longer than you hear in the movie. It's like 14 minutes long, and it goes in all these different directions and places. It is truly original and fascinating, and it has this like discursive quality. This is the original music that we played earlier that does get used in the Ludovico treatment scene, but just a very small excerpt of this long 14-minute piece. And it's incredibly forward-looking. You know, yeah. I don't think we've talked about a single synth thing in more recent music on any episode of this, you know, talking about the Terminator. Mm -hmm. I was listening to this, I was like, there's nothing in the score to Soul that we were talking about earlier this year oh, right. that isn't already in this piece better. Yeah, it's true. Agreed. I mean, what a vision. Basically the entire spiritual realm that synthesizer music offers is already sort of seen here in a flash and mapped out. It's a pretty amazing piece for 1971. To listen to this and think this is before uh, anything. I mean, I've read about a lot of famous pop artists taking direct inspiration from Wendy Carlos in coming up with these sounds, both in just the nuts and bolts of, you know, what oscillators do you string together to make a certain quality of sound, but also, yeah, in the vision and the powerful creative thought about what these sounds are good for artistically. I think she's... An an enormously influential figure in all music since that time. And I enjoyed listening to the album of this score yeah. a great deal that starts with these 13 minutes of time steps, 13 plus, which is a real journey to somewhere else. Sure. Yeah, I think it does everything that Anthony Burgess would have wanted uh, Clockwork Orange to be doing. It makes you uneasy with the place where the human and the machine become hard to distinguish from each other. Yeah. It's not saying this is a bad place. Obviously, Wendy Carlos thinks it's a wonderful place, but there's something hard about that. I was glad to be put back in touch with some real thinking about what synthesizers mean about humanity, which it seems like was actually a living artistic issue at that time. Whereas now, you know, clockwork oranges are, you, you can just get them, buy them on Amazon. <laughs> I mean, like Apple Watch is basically the same product. <laughs> First of all, as a pun, it's the same product. But also it literally is like, ooh, the more you uh, tally absolutely everything you do and think of yourself as a scientific subject, the better the world is going to be. And basically we've just all embraced that. Oh boy. Which I, I don't know if they had this 
thing that could make people actually reformed? I mean, it's obviously a horrific technique that's shown in the movie, but the idea that, you know, someone could go to therapy or get some kind of psychological treatment that changes their outlook, that they don't assert moral authority, they just actually are changed by their environment, it's not a intrinsically or horrific evil thing, I don't think. Well, well it sounds to me like you are uh, inviting us to genuinely consider the moral underpinnings of this story in a way that I would like to now be done doing. All right. I mean, do you want to talk about Singing in the Rain at all? Uh, I mean, I can tell you who doesn't want to talk about it is Gene Kelly. Did he specifically say he was pissed off about this? Because he should have been. Yeah. So (laughs) what we're talking about is that Malcolm McDowell, when he was filming the rape scene in the beginning of the movie, you know, it wasn't working out uh, the way Kubrick wanted. So he asked him to do some singing and dancing to make it more shocking or something. It was Malcolm McDowell's own idea to sing Singing in the Rain because it was the first song that he thought of that he could sing. So he winds up singing it while he's kicking people and beating them up and tying them up and all this awful stuff. And then features into the plot again later in the movie, and then we hear the actual Gene Kelly recording from the 1952 musical over the end credits of the movie, which, yeah, I can imagine being upset by. And indeed, Gene Kelly once encountered Malcolm McDowell (laughs) at a party or something and, like, pointedly turned his back on him and strode away in indignance and disgust because of having his signature recording subverted. The person he should be angry at is the person holding the rights who answered the phone that day. (laughs) Yeah. Stanley Kubrick called and said, I would like to use this during a brutal rape scene because that'll be funny. Why did they say, sure, that'll be $400, whatever. That's That's ridiculous. It was $10,000, the sum for which Kubrick licensed the song for the movie, which he did immediately after hearing McDowell sing it because yeah he thought it was funny uh it was ten thousand that's the equivalent of four hundred dollars that is nothing that is insane that they sold this for that much for this use yep so the use of this is it something more interesting than just the old i don't know (laughs) i don't have a scheme for this one because we talked about, I remember when we talked about Sergio Leone, we talked about yeah. the standard psychopathically sweet, innocent music effect during violence. Right. Where, I think what I said then is that it softens you up to stick the knife in yeah. so it'll hurt even more. And here it seemed like it's trying to horrify us by making us contemplate the psychopathic mentality for which this would not be dissonant. Oh my god, this guy that I'm witnessing thinks this music goes with this act and I can feel in my brain how messed up his brain must be because he must not feel the dissonance that I'm feeling and that makes him scary. But to me that's a particularly dangerous thing for movies to do because guess what? We've all gotten used to that by now. It's so standard. It's such a typical trope. If you put it in a lot of movies, it becomes less dissonant to us by exposure. So now the circle of like being supposedly horrified by a thing that we're also actually very familiar with is very tight. Indeed, some people committing genuine horrifying acts of violence while singing Singing in the Rain was something that happened in real life that contributed to Kubrick pulling the movie from the UK. That also feels to me kind of like a mistake that in 1971 was still fresh enough that it contributed just right. But in retrospect, it's a thing that, you know, uh, I think it's pointing in the wrong direction. It's pointing to Darth Vader. Okay, yeah, we got to talk about that. I mean, (laughs) this has nothing to do with the music or even with the essentials of the movie. But guess what? There's a scene in this movie where one of the few changes that Kubrick made was he added in the scene where Alex returns to the home of the writer whom he terrorized and raped his wife, who we find out has since died. He returns to this guy's house. The writer recognizes him after a point and uh, wants to kill him. 
And uh, I saw an interview, Malcolm McDowell says, we were asking each other, well, why wouldn't he just leave? So Stanley Kubrick invented a reason why he wouldn't leave. He put a big strong man in the scene too, to threaten him. And the big strong man is played by David Prowse, bodybuilder. Yeah, you see him building his body right there on screen. Yeah, he's got a huge, impressive body. Yeah. And for all of you aficionados of British bodybuilders of the 70s, <laughs> it's a real treat to see him in this movie. Yeah, you can just imagine how great that broad chest would look uh, in some black armor. If you were watching this movie and you were going to make a science fiction, you know, epic a few years later, and you thought, I want a character who, when they're in the room, the other characters will feel they're not free to leave. <laughs> Maybe that guy uh, should play him. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's funny that Kubrick used David Prowse, who's the body of Darth Vader in this movie. This was David Prowse's, like, big break in film roles, this movie. Kubrick also gave the big break to the voice of Darth Vader because James Earl Jones shows up in the crew of the B-52 in Doctor Strangelove. That is an interesting connection you can hear his you know rich full voice saying wing attack plan r yeah <laughs> in dr strangelove that's true both halves of darth vader came out of kubrick movies yeah uh, another thing i read is that this movie was one of the first movies to use wireless microphones on the actual actors rather than using boom mics for everything in the scene in the house with the writer when he's in the wheelchair, it seemed like there was some problem with the microphones. There was some sort of staticky sounding regular noise that was coming over them. And they thought, oh, there's something wrong with them. we got to change them out. So they switched out the microphones. They were still getting this weird sibilant kind of regular sound coming over the microphones. Turns out it was David Prowse's breathing because he was exhausted from having to carry this guy in the wheelchair up and down the stairs over and over again for all the takes that Kubrick wanted. So him having uh, his breath recorded and put over microphones, yeah, it was in the cards. Well, <laughs> cool. Cool Star Wars nerd trivia to get in Thank there. You. All right. You want to close this thing up here, Andy? Yeah. I think my closing statement is, like you said a while ago, the intention of this score and the whole movie, really, is to create a kind of provocative friction yeah. of philosophical and cultural and cinematic elements and it absolutely does, and it's a completely iconic, unforgettable, influential kind of friction. It's not actually a very complex goal to have. Uh, so in, in a sense, it's just the one thing, and it does it with great force, undeniably. Yeah, I agree, undeniably. And uh, you're right, that's the intention. And maybe my overweening attempt, you know, to break it down further and figure out, oh, here's when Kubrick's using the 120 grit sandpaper and here's where he's using the 220 grit sandpaper. <laughs> uh, maybe it doesn't matter. He's roughing it up with sandpaper and he's smoothing it out. And uh, yeah. yeah, I thought you were saying the sandpaper faces the audience. That too. Why not both, Andy? Why not both? All right. You ready for the next one? I think I am. I think you got the bucket. All right. The physical lottery is happening. It involves me reaching into these balls that you're moving around and picking one out. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And now I'm looking at it, and it has a number on it. And now I look on our cheat sheet here to see what score that number is. Aha! Yes. And I know now yes. that our next selection is... Yes. <clears throat> Frank Churchill, Lee Harleen, and Paul J. Smith's score. Huh? You know who they are. To 1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Oh. Oh, wow. <laughs> well... This is a whole category of movie that we haven't really talked about properly yet anyway. Yeah. And I guess uh, appropriate that we start out with the very progenitor of the whole genre. You mean dwarf movies? Yeah. 
this invented the concept, didn't it? No, this was the seventh one. <laughs> They're up to like 16 at this point. Because uh, think about all those little dwarfs. There's Dopey. You you gotta like Dopey. And let's not forget about Bashful. What about Sneezy? And I mean Sleepy, come on. And Doc, one of the classic ones. And Happy. And, uh, you know, one of my favorites has always been uh, Grumpy. He's so grumpy. <laughs> it's one of the things that I think is most endearing about him. Grumpy is one of your seven favorite dwarves? I don't know. I mean, he can be a drag. It's true. But yeah, he's probably just inches into the top seven. He's got a heart of gold, that dwarf. He's, uh, he's only top ten. Top ten dwarfs for me. <laughs> this, I think, is the first musical that we will have devoted a whole episode to. Is that right? Yes, it is. We've touched on a couple of them in some of our compilation episodes in the past. But a whole episode where it really is a musical, where the story is told through songs, diegetically. Yeah, first full episode. And again, fitting that it's this great innovator. I mean, obviously, this is an enormously influential movie on... Uh, on movies in general, on animated on movies, movies general, for certain, on musicals, on a lot, on a of, lot things. of things. In society. On kids' lives everywhere. Kids lives everywhere. On amusement parks. <laughs> How true. You know what? This is going to be our, can you believe it, Andy? Our next episode is our 50th episode of this podcast. We have talked a lot, haven't we? Yeah. You know, I can believe it. (laughs) I think I can believe it, too. When we got to the end of the AFI list, I guess what's now the first half of our show, I said, I can't believe we've gotten this far. This time, you're right. I can believe it. And I think that this is a worthy thing to do for our 50th episode, you know? Yeah, uh, for the kids. for (laughs) For the kids. In all of us. The whole family is invited to our 50th episode. Okay, so if you would like to uh, RSVP to your invitation to our 50th episode, some ways that you can do that are by checking in with us on Twitter at Scoresettlers, if you want to talk about this episode or others, or things that you wish were episodes, or by uh, writing us a review in your podcast listening app there about enjoying the show. That helps other people to come to the show and enjoy it, and we really, really appreciate it. Or you can tell them in person. That's always appreciated, too. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for sticking around with us. Yeah, thanks for sticking with us for 49 episodes. And uh, presumably beyond. And beyond. Yeah, here's to beyond. Yeah, see you in the beyond. I'll see you in the beyond, Andy. <laughs> you don't want to stick some NADSAT stick at the end here that we were so tastefully avoiding the whole time? All right, yeah, the real horror show. Yeah. Great big yard blockers. <laughs> and all that cow. All right, my brothers. Good night. Good night.